This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My guest this week is the Head of Public Policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Matthew Lesh. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, the Conservative leadership contest has been whittled down to the final two. What do you make of what Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are offering to the Conservative Party membership and indeed to the country? Mm. Well, look, I, I think we've got a, a real contrast of visions, although firmly within the Conservative tradition. So I think both sides have talked quite extensively about things like supply-side reform, improving the quality of uh, service delivery, um, delivering opportunity for people right around the country. I would say where you get uh, major differences in terms of the radicalism um, between their, their two stances. Uh, Trust, particularly on the, the tax front, um, has said that she wants to see taxes go down pretty much immediately, while Rishi is is probably more of what would be considered a traditional fiscal conservative or fiscally quite hesitant, and that position is, is held for quite some time, which is that uh, he doesn't believe lowering taxes um, without an immediate plan for, for how to pay for that is a particularly wise idea, um, and, and therefore he's, he's happy to see in order to fund the services that um, they think people are demanding, um, the UK remain on a, on a high tax path uh, towards the, the highest taxes in 70 years, as Liz Truss has been pointing out. Throughout this leadership contest, all of the candidates have been offering tax cuts in, in various forms, and obviously some have gone further than others. But it has seemed to some extent like uh, a kind of race to the bottom on who can lower taxation the most. Now, you and I are both of a free market mindset, but are all of these low tax plans sustainable given the state of the economy at the moment? Mm. Well, I mean, you can make a, a reverse argument that um, considering the state of the economy, not lowering taxes would be unsustainable. I think there's a big risk that we're getting to the the, the maximum levels of tax the economy can handle without it, it um, leading potentially to ultimately less revenue and, and a smaller economy. We, we do know tax is, is debt detrimental to, to economic growth. So you can look at this in a few ways. First of all, the fact, obviously, you know, at, a, at a personal level, um, it's not great to have less money in your pocket. But I think where uh, tax probably does broader damage and some of the um, most worrying upcoming tax increases as that to corporate tax. So um, in April next year, the, the plan is for corporate taxes to jump up from uh, 19% to 25%. Uh, that at the time it was announced, it looked like the US was also putting up taxes. It would put the UK not too disproportionately in, in kind of the world scheme of things. Um, I think though in practice, the fact that um, Biden hasn't actually put up taxes would mean the UK has 
would become a particularly less welcoming place to invest. Um, at the same time, the uh, super production was scheduled to end. So you take all those things together and you say, what's been holding back the UK economy? It's a lack of investment where you're just about to put a bunch of tax on investment and on um, uh, corporates being willing to create jobs and, and boost productivity. Uh, so I think you, you do have a serious issue where if you keep taxes as high as they currently are in historical terms, um, you're going to end up in a situation where the economy um, gets much worse over time um, and we end up with a lower quality of life. And, and the general evidence, the, the kind of broader evidence is if what you're concerned about is reducing government debt as a percentage of GDP, uh, putting up taxes is not that effective for this reason of reducing economic activity. Um, really, ultimately, you've got to cut spending. Now, there, there's a bit of um, classic cakeism going on here, which is, I think, an underlying problem that there's, there's a lot of interest in tax cuts, a lot less interest in saying we're going to cut uh, government spending, we're going to get more efficiency out of our schools or out of our healthcare system, that we think it's a problem that the NHS is going to take up 45% of day-to-day spending. I think you, we need to have a, probably a broader discussion on the spending side of things. But of course, you know, politics is politics in the short run. I don't think the leadership candidates are going to want to be saying something controversial on those lines. Liz Trust has been particularly vocal about this corporation tax increase that Rishi Sunak proposed when he, he was serving as Chancellor. And you mentioned there about investment. And since Boris Johnson announced his resignation, investment into the UK has been at a near standstill because of that uncertainty that the leadership contest has brought with it. So to what extent do you think things will improve in terms of addressing that investment standstill, that uncertainty around the corporation tax increase? To what extent will things improve under either Rishi Sunak or Liz Trust, depending on who wins in September? Look, I haven't seen any kind of major statistics on investment. It wouldn't surprise me. Political instability is not particularly helpful when businesses are trying to make decisions. Uh, we saw that, I think, even as someone myself who was kind of sympathetic to Brexit, there, there was a lot of uncertainty for a number of years about the UK's relationship with the rest of the world and, and the direction of policymaking. Um, I, I, I like to think, you know, no matter who wins, there would be a relentless effort in terms of um, boosting the size of the economy um, and, and growing productivity. Um, I think it's been rumoured for quite a while that Richie Sunak would extend the super deduction uh, to some extent. I would think this trust would do the same. That, that should be um, pro-investment, particularly if it's sustainable and, and it's not just something that's just for a year at a time. It's something they know that businesses can lock in and make future decisions around. Um, I think also just getting down that that um top line level of corporate tax uh, over time. Obviously, the trust has made a much bigger promise on that front than Rishi has. And when businesses are making those kind of decisions, do they want to invest or they not want to invest? Um, something they do look at is tax because that is that is a certain, you know, everything else is a bit uncertain when you're making the investment decision. You don't really know um, to what extent people might end up buying a product. You might be able to guess a bit, but you can't say with certainty. But the reason why tax has such a disproportion effect is because it's something you can really put into your model with, with absolute certainty. So um, I, I would say on that front, uh, it's quite important. I would also say more broadly is, and we'll focus a lot on tax, probably less on, on red tape and regulation and supplier side reforms and making um, doing business easier in the UK um, and, and ensuring that the state uh, allows people who are free to innovate and free to create. And that's going to be absolutely essential to uh, attracting investment over time. And just on 
Brexit. Liz Truss, of course, voted Remain in 2016, but has been synonymous with all of these post-Brexit trade deals. And on the flip side of that, you've got Rishi Sunak, who originally voted Leave, but has been seen as being something of a reluctant Brexiteer to many who have been on that pro-leaving the EU argument. But do you think the, the so-called Brexit dividends would come through in a greater number or a greater volume with Liz Truss or with Rishi Sunak based on the plans they've outlined so far? Yeah, look, I mean, they both said that they want to take advantage of Brexit opportunities. It's ultimately going to be a question of radicalism. To what extent are you willing to grasp those and, and push through the bureaucratic systems and, and try to achieve them? And there was some concern from, from uh, people in government about Rishi Sunak and, and the, the Chancellor and the, the, the Treasury's attitude to taking advantage of Brexit opportunities. There is a lot of instinctive conservatism in Whitehall um, in the sense of, that they, they don't particularly like the idea of getting rid of loads of regulation. They don't particularly like the idea of changing the arrangement of businesses. And often um, large businesses don't particularly like that either. The, the, the classic regulatory story is one in which mm. big business actually doesn't really mind the existing regulatory arrangements because they've already ad- adapted to them. They've, they already understand them well. And the regulations provide a barrier to entry, which stop potential competitors. So it's really a question of, of who is going to end up being the most radical. I don't think we've seen enough detailed plans from, from either mm-hmm. side. And this is something, you know, it's been, it's been what, two weeks or so of this leadership contest. I mean, I wouldn't expect uh, extended policy papers from either side, but I would like to see more detail over the coming weeks. And, and we don't have a lot of time to, to figure this out, what they're actually going to do. This is, this is one of the biggest, biggest disadvantages, I think, of coming to leadership midway through government is that you don't get that time, which you might have an opposition over many years to develop your ideas, to, to road test them. So they've got to very quickly put forward what they want to achieve. And, and I'm, in my my view, the, the the more the better because we, they don't have a lot of time and there's a lot of forthcoming challenges. And Rishi Sunak was, of course, Chancellor of the Exchequer until recently, and th- therefore within that job, he's responsible for the nation's finances. So, do you think it's right for him to be campaigning for the leadership on a platform of quote, rebuilding our economy when he was in fact in charge of it for the last two and a half years, or? Is he making a broader point that the UK actually needs more serious and structural reform to the economy? Yeah, I mean, this is a great irony here, which is that by all reports, Truss is the candidate supported by uh, the Boris cohort, um, and she's the one promising kind of radical change, whilst whilst Rishi, who is the former chancellor, is perceived as the one uh, who's who, although is opposed by the existing administration, is um, basically you could argue on an economic policy, more or less promising status quo. And it's mm. it's status quo because he was in charge of economic policy already for the last few years. And, and if he wins uh, the leadership, he'll be in charge of economic policy for, for a few years longer um, at number 10 rather than number 11. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it, at this point, it's just kind of hard to say in terms of what, what they're going to do or what they're going to achieve or how different mm. um, they are going to be to each other. Um, I think once you get into number 10, you're just so overwhelmed by by things day to day you know you've got to be all over the country at various events and you've got to fly overseas all the time for international leaders meetings um you've got a it, it's a difficult task um and i think it's something where boris often struggled was the fact that he wasn't able to balance uh that that kind of day to day with a broader vision and a, and a consistent sense of what he stood for and i think whoever's next to number 10 is going to need to both be very capable of that themselves and also construct a very good team around mm-hmm. a very good set of people who can to direct the machine and achieve the kind of change they want to achieve in a, in a kind of consistent yeah. um, idea of what that will be. Kemi Badenoch, who is, of course, one of the uh, eliminated leadership candidates, 
she had quite an interesting idea, of, uh, which was to propose breaking up the Treasury and creating an office for economic growth that would be overseen by the Prime Minister. Do you think that's a good idea? I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea. In uh, my home country, Australia, there is a separation between Treasury and finance. So the, tre- the Treasury Department is meant to be, uh, I, I suppose, the, the, the spending department and the economic department, while finance is meant to be the, the revenue department and, and controls government spending day to day. And I think you can get a bit of a, you know, the classic Treasury um, head thing here, where basically you're really focused on day to day, you know, fiscal management rather than on broader, longer term economic growth. Um, and as a result of that, you, you get that kind of competing, occasionally competing force. Um, Boris, notably in his his final speech um, in Parliament last week, made some interesting remarks about, you know, don't get trapped by Treasury. And uh, I don't know whether that was a, a personal attack on Rishi or, or a broader attack just on the institution, the culture that acts as a um, logjam for a lot of government policies because everything effectively ends up going through Treasury and has disproportionate power and influence. So I'm, I am sympathetic to, to Kami's idea of splitting it up on and restructuring um, the, the Whitehall operation. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where it, it, great idea in theory may or may not work in practice. Um, you, again, you, you need to have that vision, that idea of what you want to achieve. You can't just splitting up Treasury and um, into two separate bits and bobs isn't going to achieve anything unless you have subsequent policies that you're intending to implement um, with the help of that new system. The immense debts that had been amounted in dealing with the pandemic is also a large reason for the, the high inflation rates that we're seeing at the moment and is being used as a kind of justification for recent tax rises. Now, Liz Truss is proposing treating that, that COVID debt like a war debt, similar to how it was dealt with from the Second World War. So could you just explain for listeners who might not fully get the idea of what that is, just what it means to treat it like a war debt and whether you think uh, it would be a good idea to treat it as such? Mm, so this is, I think this is actually quite uh, a good idea to separate out the COVID debt as an idea of consoles. Um, which is a little bit different to, I think, what Liz is proposing, but a similar basic concept, which is with consoles, you have no fixed end date. You just commit to paying a year-by-year interest costs on them and you'll pay them off uh, you buy them back at some point in the future. Uh, consoles is what the UK has used back to the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and some of, the, some of the, the oldest ones were only paid off in something like 2013. So they, they basically mean rather than having a kind of fixed end date, uh, a, a cliff edge where you're going to have to refinance um, or pay off those debts, you basically say, well, this is a one-off occasion um, and, and this is something, therefore, that we, there's no real hurry to pay back. Like you, you don't need to hurry to pay back awards at um, as long as you're not increasing that debt and as long as it's only used for one particular purpose which is all the COVID associated that the part of the debt that's COVID associated you can get a little bit I think you can get a little bit of legitimacy and that means when you're making decisions you're not focused on COVID debt you're focused on um, what is the underlying level of debt um, and and what is the, the potential impact to your policies on on that underlying level of debt and I think we can get overly distracted if we do focus too much mm-hmm. on that COVID debt and it, it, it um, intrudes on our decision-making as a result. Okay, I'd like to move away from the leadership contest now and focus on something that you've been very passionate about in campaigning on, which is the online safety bill. So could you just set out why you're so against this piece of legislation? Mm. So, I mean, I do have serious concerns about the online safety bill, which you know, so- sounds like I'm, I'm the bad guy in the room here mm. as because uh, who could possibly oppose such a fantastic goal mm. as online safety? Um, I mean, I, I think the idea of 
a safer world or a safer internet is not something as, as a goal many people would oppose. I think what there are serious concerns about, not just myself, um, but a lot of other researchers and, and, and tech policy uh, people, as well as free speech groups and uh, privacy groups, as well as business groups about the regulatory burdens, is the particular model being proposed. Now, it gets very complex very quickly. Um, it's like a 250-page piece of legislation, so I wouldn't even try to summarise it here. But I'll say the, the underlying model is this notion that we're going to put a duty of care or various duties of care on internet companies, largely focused on um, uh, social media, but social media very broadly defined to include everything from mm. WhatsApp to Mumsnet to Twitter, as well as mm. search engines. And then what we're going to say to them is they have to address a number of um, associated potential harms, both in terms of illegal content, in terms of content that could be harmful to children, as well as content that could be harmful to adults. Now, my, my overall concerns, and I'll, I'll, I'll outline uh, the, the three main concerns. The first one is on free speech, which is mm -hmm. I get very concerned that the bill is going to create a huge impetus to censor legal and illegal speech, um, both in the terms of the proactive requirements to remove certain legal speech. It's very hard to determine proactively what isn't isn't illegal to have an idea. You know, usually if, if if you're making a speech crime, it has to go through a prosecutorial process, it has to go through a court, you get to defend yourself. Basically, what we're doing is we're outsourcing all that responsibility to tech companies and we're saying you have to do that automatically using your systems. And I worry that when you combine that with a threat of a massive fine for failure to um, comply with that duty, you're going to lead to a mass censorship um, of, of content in, in a in a very cautious way um, and on top of that the duties related to legal but harmful speech which are uh, objectively trying to try and limit the amount of what is legal speech with the government considers to be harmful and the fact that the government can expand that list anytime i think raises serious free speech issues even if the government today might claim to be pro-free speech um a future government could extend that list of things like trans issues or climate denial or whatever they they think the issue at the moment is that, that they want tech companies to address and and you can see it's much harder to have those kind of um, very controversial um very um emotional debates very and particularly since there's a provision in the bill to do with criminal law which says you basically need to outlaws causing serious emotional distress you combine that with the duty on companies to deal with serious emotional distress and everyone is going to be claiming to be distressed all the time and, and asking for censorship so that's the kind of the underlying free speech issue then there's a, a whole range of privacy issues in order to fulfill the duties that you're talking about mass monitoring of user content you're talking about potential including of private messages the government will be able to tell whatsapp to pre-scan your private messages for certain kinds of content um, as, as well as in order to fulfill the ch child safety duty um, you they might require you to identify yourself to access adult pornography explicitly you're going to have to start um, entering some like your driver's license or your credit card in order to access content which might not be acceptable to children that raises a lot of privacy issues a lot of, of data security issues um, and on top of that um, I, I'm barely kind of touching the surface of what this bill does in terms of the regulatory burdens. This is the, the third major issue when it comes to innovation is we're putting an extreme amount of transparency requirements, um, risk assessments, uh, proactive duties on companies. Now, the large companies, you know, the Googles, uh, the, the Metas, Facebooks of these world are probably going to be able to deal with the regulatory burden. They have a lot of lawyers, they have a lot of engineers. What I worry is it's going to make life much harder for smaller companies, for startups, for competitors who might want to um, compete with these companies. And we're creating a massive barrier to entry um, in terms of the, the cost to comply with this legislation and could result in UK users having a lot less access to internet services. You know, I, I think it's extremely likely that if you're an American startup, 
trying to compete with Google, you just will block UK users because you won't have to, you just won't be big enough to want to deal with the regulatory issues. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have a lot of issues when it comes to just the, the cost of this regulation. And we were talking earlier about how all the candidates have said, well, post-Brexit, we need to get rid of regulation that's holding businesses back. Well, I think in the first instance, I'd like to say them not introduce new regulations that will hold people back and, and, and cause yeah. issues. I want to focus really on the speech element, the free speech element of the online mm. teacher bill, which is what so many people have had real uh, reservations and concerns about. And it, one of the main issues people have picked up on is the fact that within this bill, that there are certain types of speech that would be legal to say if we, if we were speaking in person, face-to-face, -face, physically, but would be illegal to say online. So what type of speech would fall under this category? Mm, so this is, this is the uh, legal but harmful duty. Um, and it's, it's a little bit nuanced. Um, more so, and, and this is something the government hides behind. I think they're wrong to hide behind it. So technically the duty in the bill is they have to, um, category one, which are the large tech companies, have to state in their terms and conditions how they will address legal but harmful speech. Now, on paper, they could opt to say, we actually allow legal but harmful speech. But I think in practice, what we know from these tech companies is, in fact, their, their, their existing policies um, are that they don't particularly like a lot of categories of legal but harmful speech, and they're unlikely to say, yes, we are happy to host legal but harmful speech. So then once they um, say in their terms and conditions, which I expect they will, that they're going to follow the government's advice in terms of of what they consider to be legal but harmful speech, um, they then have to um, uh, act consistently in their policies related to that. Now, when they're acting consistently, I worry that it's going to be consistently more censorious. So they're going to consistently remove a lot more things. Now, some of the things um, that are going to be on that list are content that I think most people would say, isn't that already illegal? Things like um, encouraging self-harm. So I think it's, it is illegal at the moment to encourage someone to take their own life, but it's not illegal to encourage self-harm. Now, that's something that I'd be perfectly fine with making illegal in itself. Um, there's other things, though, that are less clear, things like uh, hate speech that isn't quite a legal hate speech, but is um, kind of at the, the next level down of maybe a, a racist comment against a footballer. Um, something that you know, I think is, is immoral and wrong and terrible to say, but is not at least currently legal, but they're going to put an impetus on companies to be uh, far more aggressive in their policies to remove that kind of speech, um, which in itself you wouldn't think there's too much issue in. But what I think that we do would start to get issues in the kind of more borderline cases um, is Charlie Hebro hate speech, um, is uh, the, the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, is, is that hate speech? Is it hate speech to say um, trans men are women and trans women are men or whatever it may be in that particular, in reverse, saying, you know, terrible things about um, TERFs. Is that hate speech against women or something? I, I mean, there's all sorts of questions here where once you get into the nuance and of, the, of the, these issues, there's a risk that particularly that all those things that are currently legal, um, the impetus would be on the companies to, to say, we really want to host these things and we're going to risk um, potential regulatory oversight from Ofcom and pressure from Ofcom um, you know, if we continue to host them. And over time as well, we should remember that the, the, the bill will not be stable. Um, there are a lot of powers for Ofcom, a lot of powers for Secretary of State to set the priorities to, to change the list of legal but harmful and to extend that. So if there's a particular public issue that um, the government gets a lot of pressure on, uh, there's a risk that they basically say, well, that's now illegal but harmful and we expect that to be addressed in your terms and conditions. Or maybe they'll even just 
do a small change of legislation and say you do have to remove legal but harmful speech. So there's there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things where you you could limit allowable speech online, things you could say in Hyde Park Corner, you could publish in a newspaper, but you couldn't say online. Um, so it really says you and I, as normal people, don't have the same rights to free speech online mm-hmm. um, as we might have offline. And that that term, legal but harmful, it, it's it's a really quite it's quite vague. And the, the the bill describes harm as psychological harm amounting to at least serious distress. Now that that is just it's highly subjective. So based on the terms of the bill and having legal but harmful set as just as a minimum of serious distress, would each complaint under that banner of legal but harmful be assessed on a case by case basis? Or would there be a set of guidance applied to all cases? You mentioned there about tech companies having to judge uh, consistently uh, for their platforms. So how how would you assess what would be deemed as harmful under this mm. piece of legislation? So the, the government will say Ofcom isn't um, deciding individual pieces of content. And, and that is technically true. In fact, what the entire legislation does is it outsources law enforcement um, and moral questions uh, on things like legal but harmful to the tech companies. So it's, it's actually requiring the companies to make an assessment. They do then, of course, and this is this is where it gets a bit more tricky, they, they do it under the codes of conduct and the guidance of Ofcom. So that effectively gives Ofcom the power to decide these kind of things, as well as the fact that if you're, if Ofcom is investigating, it's hard to see how they could investigate a company without looking at individual pieces of content. So inevitably, when when they're making um, determinations, I think it's going to have to be on pieces of content, even if it's you know a hundred pieces of content. It will be pieces of content deciding the kind of things they do and don't like to see. Now, Ofcom is going to be careful to say we're not doing that. But I think in practice, they're inevitably going to have to do it. And they're going to have to decide what kinds of things aren't and are and aren't allowed on the internet, and then or they're going to have to outsource a lot of that responsibility depending on how specific they make the codes of conduct. So in, in the end, what we're doing here, and and there's a lot of you know, some of the response by conservatives to this is saying, well, the tech companies are already censorious. Um, and I, I fundamentally agree with them. I think the companies are too censorious. But they basically make these decisions in a, in a very heated market of ideas and competition between platforms. You can say all sorts of different things on different platforms. There's, there's at least some level of competition. You can go to something like Gab or you can say whatever you like on WhatsApp or you know, whatever. The problem with online safety bill, it's now effectively centralizing how everyone is meant to treat all these different issues mm-hmm. and creating a probably a much um, lower threshold for censorship. It's expecting the companies to remove a lot more things or, or deprioritize or derank or you know reduce the reach, reach of certain bits and pieces of content. So I think it, it is very much with the intent of um, reducing the kind of content that we're allowed to see and we're allowed to access online. And given that there's currently a huge backlog within the legal system currently, if cases are brought to trial under this online safety legislation, what sort of additional pressure do you think that would place on the judiciary? Mm. So, I mean, fundamentally, the, the bill is, uh, for, for the most part, not about individuals. So it is about the companies. Um, so you, you or I can't be prosecuted for a failure to follow the duty. The, the, the companies will be, it's a regulatory process. They can be fined by Ofcom, mm. and Ofcom is hiring by the hundreds, if not the thousands of people um, to mm. provide um, that scrutiny of companies. Mm. So it's unlikely you're going to get a legal backlog on that particular part of um, the bill. Now, separately to that, the bill does update um, the criminal offences, and I think that's what you're referring to in terms of mm. uh, the, the causing um, severe emotional distress. Uh, so under that section of the bill, you, you could, I mean, the, the difference here is in the legal process, there's a lot of protections. You're basically, if, if you want to, 
if you want to take someone to court, um, or I should say the, the, the government, the prosecutors want to take someone to court, the criminal system, basically you have to have a pretty good idea, a pretty good threshold in terms of mm. the evidence and the requirements. For example, um, you, you'd have to substantiate if you're someone, if you uh, under the harms-based defense, mm. that, that it was really intent to cause harm. Yeah. And, the, and, and that's pretty hard to do. And then you'd have to potentially take them to court and prove their intent, that they were maliciously acting. Mm. So I don't actually know if the bill will increase court cases substantially. The problem is we're not going to get things to court. We're going to get that censorship mm. at the level of the tech companies and at yeah. the level of Ofcom. We're, we're mm. taking this into a minute. We're outsourcing this from the courts yeah. and taking it to administrative process. Okay. But Ofcom is being given these sweeping new powers with the, the online safety bill. And as you say, they're, they're hiring in the, the hundreds, if not thousands, to monitor this and to, to effectively implement the, the actions within the bill. But there's been little to no increase in accountability over Ofcom as a result of this. So... What exactly is under Ofcom's new remit with the online safety bill? And just how dangerous a precedent does it set if this bill passes? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the first instance, Ofcom is going to struggle because the expectations are so high and ridiculous in terms mm. of we're going to make, you know, the, the, the Dean Doris has been going around saying, you know, this bill will make the UK the safest place in the world to go online. I mean, you tell that to the the, the Chinese Communist Party who, who have probably hundreds of thousands of people trying to censor the internet and make it safe. And in no sense is the Chinese internet perfectly safe or safer. So you've got this expectation issue on Ofcom. You've then got Ofcom just with, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, just with a lot of discretionary power to decide things. You know, what does it mean to hate speech? What does it mean to cause um, emotional distress? And what, what, what are these going to be their guidance and their codes of conduct on a lot of these issues? And this is going to be a slow process. They've, they've, um, Ofcom recently published their kind of planning document where they, they say you're probably not really going to see the codes of conduct until, you know, 2024 um, at the soonest. Now, in the meantime, you can have a lot of online harm going on. It's why actually a reason why I don't think the online safety bill is a particularly great idea, because if there are serious issues you want to address online, you could probably do it much faster in a collaborative way, not through regulation. But instead of going through this very slow regulatory process, um, we're giving you a lot of power to Ofcom. Ofcom is not um, you know, they, they will try to be independent, but Ofcom is it's human, it's people, and it's people who have biases, who have certain worldview, who are going to want to push that worldview. Um, and there is a risk there that those by pushing a worldview that they they do end up creating a more censorious internet in the process. And as as for setting precedents, you, you've already mentioned there the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, that they, they already have an incredibly strict and censorious uh, internet regime. But more authoritarian countries are starting to create their own online safety legislation based around what the UK is presenting with this online safety bill. So if this does pass in the UK, what do you think it would do to the UK's standing in the world as this champion of freedom? Look, I've always found a great irony that one of the UK's main foreign policy goals is promoting media freedom, um, a very worthwhile uh, foreign policy goal, but it seems a bit contradictory to me to at the same time be proposing legislation like this that is that is at its fundamental level aiming to censor online speech and aiming to, to limit free speech. And I, I think you're, you're completely right to say that this has already been a precedent for some countries. It, it is referred to um, by countries who, uh, with a lot less niceties than something like a Ofcom, have said, well, if the UK is doing online censorship, um, we can do that as well. We, we can censor things that we think are harmful to our um, uh, our publics and their threshold of what the governments there think might be harmful is going to be much lower. So I think you're right to say we, we set a, a pretty bad global precedent with a lot of this legislation from a, from a privacy perspective and uh, and from a free speech perspective. I think we're also seeing a, a bit of a... Um, uh, 
multi, like a disconnecting internet here. And the whole idea of the internet was that everyone everywhere would basically have access to the same information. I mean, it probably hasn't been true for a while, sadly, because of, of things like online censorship in China or Russia or Saudi Arabia or whatever. But we're now seeing at another level, even in the between different parts of the West, between you know uh, the Middle East and, and America, we're seeing very different internets form, and we're we're seeing a real um, disconnect and multifaceted internet where we're going to have a British internet that is censored in a British way, and then there'll be an American internet yeah. which will be less censored. But even you know, I, and I think that's just a bit sad and disappointing as a general outcome. And as well as Ofcom getting new powers, the, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, currently Nadine Doris. Uh, also gets new powers as well, with effectively having the power to censor the internet, as critics are, are saying, by, by saying that whoever is serving in, in that position would have the power to overrule those Ofcom judgments if, if they feel it's necessary. So should one person be allowed to have such a power, again, without that additional scrutiny or accountability? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very worried in legislation by the powers going to Secretary of State. I mean, they won't directly have the power to censor things, but they will have the power to set off Ofcom's priorities. They'll have the power, as they've done previously, to write to Ofcom, and that puts a lot of pressure onto Ofcom if there's a certain issue or certain problem and that they want to see addressed. They also have the power to amend uh, codes of conduct, so the the kind of the, the instructions on to from Ofcom to the companies and in, in how they operate. The the um, there's quite broad powers in there for the Secretary of State. Now at the same time, I'm not that also not that power with Ofcom, and not not that's right. I'm also not that comfortable with Ofcom having the powers to do that either. You know, there's mm. Ofcom has even less democratic accountability, even even less um, connection to uh, the kind of general public in terms of public opinion. So I mean, I don't, I just don't particularly like the idea of you know the state centralising, controlling all these matters. Mm. And I think that's the underlying issue here, whether or not the Secretary of State has mm-hmm. particular powers or not. Okay, so just to finish then, due to the confidence vote in Boris Johnson's government this week, the next debate in the House of Commons on the online safety bill will not take place until after the, the summer recess when, when Parliament reconvenes in September, when, of course, we will have that new Prime Minister. Now, Kemi Badenoch was the only leadership candidate to actually address the online safety bill and said that she would scrap it if she weren't. But as it will now be either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss who becomes Prime Minister, do you think the bill will be amended, abolished or passed unchanged? I think it's it's very likely from what both uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have said, and they were, they were both questioned about this, um, at the Spectator leadership hustings last week, um, that they have some issues and have some concerns. Now, they both said we want to protect child safety as an underlying goal, but also got concerns about the free speech issues. Um, I think it is it is very likely that there will be some further amendments and further changes to this bill um, before it's passed. In any case, um, it's, it, it hasn't fully passed the, the um House of Commons, and when it goes to the Lords, it's also likely to be further amended in the Lords anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't, as much as I, I would like the government potentially to go back to the the um, whiteboard and start again, I, I don't think that's necessarily likely to be the case, although we shouldn't rule that out as a possibility. It might end up being such a mess that it's it's not worth passing. Um, and I think there's many arguments to say that it's, it's not very difficult, if not impossible, to implement in its entirety. It's become a, a sprawling, complex, um, o- over engineered piece of legislation. So in that sense, there's, there's a potential there that, that it might be lost in its entirety, but I think at the very least it will be amended. Okay. Matthew Lesh, thank you very much for coming on the show.